Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. During the week, I get to teach a class for homeschool high school students called Informal Logic. And the goal of Informal Logic is for students to be able to recognize fallacies that they might come across in everyday language when they're watching TV, when they're listening to podcasts. I don't know if students listen to podcasts, but if they do, they can discover these fallacies. And this week, we learned a fallacy called irrelevant goals or functions. An irrelevant goal or function is when something is measured according to a goal it was never intended to achieve. So you might ask your personal trainer, how will running three miles a day help me make friends? To which your personal trainer will say, the goal of running three miles is not to help you make friends. It's to help you get in shape or maintain a standard of health. The problem is that when we have irrelevant goals or functions, they reveal that we don't understand the nature of a thing or an endeavor. So a great example of this that's very prevalent in our culture, you've heard the phrase, whoever dies with the most toys wins. Well, what's that saying about the goal of human life? To accumulate stuff. But we know that that's not the goal of human life. So that is an irrelevant goal or function fallacy. One area where the irrelevant goals and functions fallacy is alive and well is when we talk about the nature and identity of the church. For many people, church is a consumeristic place to be entertained, where their personal preferences can be catered to. And of course, if this is the way you view church, when you as a consumer don't feel that your preferences are being satisfied, you pick up and you church shop. For others, church is about building a brand. It's about marketing and franchising and growth simply for the sake of growth. According to this way of thinking about church, the only goal is numbers, more people in pews, more tithes, etc. Still for others, church is a status symbol. I go to such and such a church with all the other people who look like me and talk like me and are in the same income bracket as me. And yet for others, church is a political action group aimed at perpetuating their left-wing or right-wing agenda. The problem is that if we judge church by any of these standards, then we've missed the point. If our goal is to be entertained as consumers, then go to the movies. If our goal is to build a brand then go join a tech startup. If our goal is to use church as a status symbol, then join a country club. If our goal is to be a political activist, then join a political party. The church, however, is not any of those things. And if we bring those goals to the table when we're thinking about the nature and identity of the church, well, then we'll always have goals that are at best irrelevant, but at worst contrary to scripture which will always then malform our understanding of the church and her vocation and our role in that vocation. In the book of Ephesians, specifically chapters 4 through 6, the Apostle Paul is interested in detailing how the glory of God, which he discusses in detail in the first three chapters, is to be expressed in the life of the church. In other words, St. Paul wants to tell us how we are to live as the church in order to be the church. Paul exhorts his audience to walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. Live up to your calling. What is that calling? 
The answer is to be a Christian, to be part of the body of Christ. And what this means is that our focus as Christians is not on consumerism, not on branding and numbers, not on status, not on partisan politics. Our focus is on being Christians. And St. Paul gives us four criteria that mark whether we are successful in that vocation or not. Lowliness, meekness, long-suffering, and forbearance. Now, lowliness here probably means humble mind. In the Greco-Roman world, much like our world today, humility was not a virtue. Strength was a virtue, not humility. Humility is a virtue for the Christian only because Jesus Christ exemplifies humility in the way that he lived and in the way that he died. And we seek then to emulate him. Now, the word meekness is an interesting one because it's often used interchangeably with humility or to mean gentleness or some sort of combination of the two. And that's not a bad definition, but here it seems that St. Paul means our lives should have a sole focus that we pursue with a kind of tenacity. And tenacity not meaning being mean towards someone else or you know, shoving them out of the way, but rather in a way that, that we cannot be distracted or derailed from the main goal, even by slights and injuries or insults. In addition to lowliness and meekness, St. Paul tells us we must be long-suffering or patient. When we hear the word patience, we think of maybe what we have to do when we sit through the line at the DMV. You have to be patient. And that's true. That's a part of patience, doing something unpleasant or having to sit through and endure suffering. But there's another sense in which patience means being slow to avenge a wrong or slow to retaliate. So the patient person is one who doesn't have to clap back immediately at insult or injury, but can stop and can trust God. And finally, Paul tells us that we must have forbearance with love. No doubt a practical outworking of patience based on a recognition of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's forbearance with love. And so because we know that that's what God has done for us, we should then seek to do that for others. And if we can't do that for others, well, then we're not going to be able to live together in any sort of community because in any community, there will always be wrongs going back and forth. So the Christian life then is one that's characterized by lowliness and humility and patience and forbearance with love. These are necessary if we are to pursue our calling as Christians. But here's the important thing to remember. The church is, as we say in the prayer of thanksgiving at Holy Communion, the mystical body of all faithful people. The mystical body of all faithful people. So when we talk about the church with a capital C, we're talking about this invisible organism that's united by the head who is Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. But we experience the church, not in the abstract, in the ethereal. We encounter it in the concrete, in the parish. The parish is the local instantiation of the capital C church. And how do we encounter a parish? Well, through the various parishioners that make up that parish, that contribute to the common life of that parish. 
And so what this means is that all three levels, the church as a whole, the parish, and the individual Christian life are so connected so that if we want the church to be healthy, well, then we should want the parish to be healthy. And if we want the parish to be healthy, then we should seek to be healthy ourselves in that we live out our vocation with that kind of single-mindedness that St. Paul describes this morning. So that starts when we allow ourselves to be formed and shaped by the gospel down to the very core of our being. When we begin to imitate the example of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is not a calling that we can compartmentalize, that we can set off to the side as we pursue other vocations. No, this impacts every single part of who we are. And what it means is that we have to center ourselves on what's important. It's not about being the church of what's happening now. It's not about building a successful brand. It's not about being a country club or a voting block. It's about following our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, with all of our hearts and with all of our souls and with all of our minds. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, amen.